Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Great to connect, guys. Well, we're going to spend the first half of the show going deep into the budget. It's kind of the the target-rich zone that the Hub loves, the confluence of politics, economics, and public policy all there writ large. So let's go into the budget on the first half of the show. And then the second half of the show, a feature that we want to do from time to time here on the Hub Dialogues, which is to talk to policy practitioners who are kind of in the thick of it, who are dealing with the... um, you know, the, the big issue of the moment. So in the second half of the show, stick around because we've got Kevin Chan from Meta, one of the kind of key um, global leaders at Meta who's dealing with public policy. And boy, do they have their hands full here in Canada with Bill C-18. Um, we'll unpack all of that for you with Kevin Chan. What is the future of news in Canada and its relationship with the big platforms like Meta, Google, uh, you name it, um, TikTok. We'll have to save that for another another day. But let's uh, dig in first into the budget. Sean, I want to come to you first because um, I was kind of struggling um, about this budget. We had months in advance of Minister Christopher Freeland talking to us about how the budget would reflect uh, I don't know, as I wouldn't say fiscal sobriety, but a more restrained posture on the part of the government to recognize, you know, this moment that we're in of high interest rates, of increasing financial risks and instability. And then the budget drops and it's something very different. It is a flashback to the pandemic, a flashback to before the pandemic of really significant deficit spending, of a, another ambitious, far-reaching uh, agenda for government. So, Sean, you've had the experience of sitting both in a, uh, the office of a minister of finance in Canada and in the prime minister's office. Talk to us a bit about the sausage-making here. Like, what the heck happened between all these weeks and months of careful, seeming orchestration and communication around a different fiscal attitude from this government versus what showed up on our news feeds uh, on, uh, when was it, Wednesday, Thursday this week? Yeah, the the charitable response um, would be that the Inflation Reduction Act in Washington, um, which set out billions and billions of dollars in incentives and subsidies for clean technology investments in the United States caused the minister and the government to change course. And instead of the fiscal restraint that she had promised, and as you say, the the weeks and months leading up to the budget, um, pursue a, a much different path that uh, is manifest manifests itself in billions of dollars in incremental spending year over year. Um, and in 27-28, a year in which the government just this past November was projecting a budget surplus is now projecting a deficit of $14.5 billion and a return to surplus, again, um, postponed indefinitely. That's the charitable answer. I think the uncharitable answer is this is who this government is, Rudyard. Um, this government has, since it was first elected in late 2015, uh, had a predisposition to high levels of public spending. It sees uh, an active role for the state in the economy and society. And, um, you know, I think it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Um, This government, however long it ultimately lasts in power, um, is going to be who it is. And, uh, you know, it seems to me, um, this budget is only a, a reinforcement that um, you, you don't change uh, after seven or eight years in, in power. Yeah, but I mean, 
guys, the world has changed in the last 12 months. I mean, um, high interest rates. Uh, we've got a couple big uh, bank collapses now. I mean, this is a moment of, of heightened global financial fragility, as we've talked a lot on this podcast in the hub. You know, Canada is a tiny country, you know, 36 million people, um, something other than a reserve currency. I mean, there's lots of reasons to think that this might be a moment, Stuart, to have been more cautious, more prudential. Look what happened to the UK in the fall. Again, a more of, I think, an analog to Canada in terms of an economy that's outside of uh, the big power centers of Europe, the United States, and Japan. Do you think, Stuart, that maybe some of this might have had to do with the prime minister's own kind of weakened political position over the last number of months uh, as the Chinese interference um, scandal has grown, as he has come under increasingly poor ratings, polling in terms of his popularity, his appeal in the country. Do you think there's any sense here possibly of a, a PMO stepping into finance and saying, okay, you guys might have a theory of fiscal restraint. I've got a theory of political survival. And, you know, we need a budget that's going to kind of lift all boats here. And if we have to fight an election, set up the basis for us to fight a credible campaign. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it is really you can see it in this one number from a CBC story uh, after the budget, which is that 70 percent of the net new spending introduced in this budget over the next six years is health and dental transfers. Um, So basically, they did what they had to do to keep the NDP on side. Um, And if you looked after the budget, Jagmeet Singh was beaming. He was basically saying that he wrote this. Um, Pierre Polyev was, he usually says the liberal NDP coalition or something like that. He was just saying NDP government (laughs) on Tuesday. So uh, maybe that was a slip, but I think actually it is a a pretty fair assessment of what happened here. And, you know, this budget, so that's the big chunk of it is dental and health. The top line numbers are really grim. Um, The deficit was 10 billion more than forecast. They uh, saw 5.7 billion less in revenue due to the economic conditions. And they're going to do some kind of program review. I think Sean can tell you how hard that is to actually get results from those. It's excruciating as a process to actually save money that way. So what they did was they did what the NDP needed, gave them a political win. They gave Polyev a political win by overspending um, and losing revenues. And I don't see what positives the liberals come out of this budget with other than just staying alive. Survival. Let, let me let me just weigh in there because um, I, I think um, great insights on both your parts. If that's the case, if this was to trade off the kind of short term survivability of the, the prime minister uh, in exchange for Minister Freeland's credibility, you know, gosh, um, that that's a it seems like to me like a tough trade. I was up late last night because I'm my kids are sick and I, I found a YouTube video that the conservatives put out in response to the budget where they have Minister Freeland in the House of Commons last April when she tabled the budget calling a declining debt to GDP ratio and a declining deficit lines that the government would not cross. Those are her words in the House of Commons. And of course, um, this week's budget, she crosses both those lines. This year, the debt to GDP ratio will climb. And as I said earlier, guys, instead of a surplus at the end of the fiscal planning period, we have another deficit. Um, I, I was on another podcast, um, Moonlighting, this week. Uh, and you asked me about how the sausage is made, Rudyard. Um, I, I'm not kidding. This isn't hyperbole. Jim Flaherty would not have tabled a budget um, in which the uh, the final year, the outer year, went from a surplus to deficit. He would have threatened to quit. I, I mean that quite seriously. He would have insisted on some combination of pushing off spending, finding fiscal savings, even even revenue enhancement. He took so seriously um, the importance for him as the finance minister to be credible in his numbers and to have her say, these are lines we won't cross. And then, you know, within a year, cross them is is a a sign that this government doesn't take seriously some of the changes in the economic and kind of fiscal environment that you were talking about uh, earlier Rudyard, and then maybe to Stewart's point, it may be the case that at this stage, it is a government that is just so focused on uh, winning the the day-to-day political battle, it's lost sight of some of these bigger picture issues like the fiscal credibility of the government of Canada. Yeah. And just to throw some numbers out here, because they are staggering, guys. Um, 
This budget, uh, in terms of program spending, uh, is predicting a, a total um, from Ottawa that will be 50% bigger by 2027. It's not that too long from now than it was in 2019, 2020, which was already, you know, a moment of significant deficit spending. There'll be $171 billion more per spending per year uh, by 2027 than in 2029-2020, um, 32% higher than 2022-2023 versus 2019-2020. So even this year, we're 30% up over the, the, the pre-pandemic uh, budget. I mean... Sean, I just come to you again on this. Like, these are staggering numbers. And I wonder, I worry here, guys, you know, at what point does the bond market wake up? Um, at what point do international investors say, you know, the much vaulted, hard-earned, you know, fiscal probity that Canada won in the 1990s through, you know, a brutal uh, fight of... Um, of debt and deficit spending reined in by Martin and the Cretchen government is in a sense out the window. And if I'm holding Canadian debt, I need to anticipate two things. One, an inflation risk. I want a premium on that. I want a higher yield because there's lots of reasons to think that inflation is more structural. Um, you know, we're seeing supply chain reshoring. We're seeing greater competition between China, the United States, the rest of the world. There's all kinds of reasons out there to think that there could be more friction in the global economy in the future rather than less. And then I'm looking at Canada, non-reserve currency. I think there's a currency risk that you'd want to factor in if you're a Canadian borrower. And then finally, you come to, in a sense, a sovereign risk, which is almost crazy. It's like hard to contemplate. I'm not saying a default of the Canadian or provincial government, but a sense that that governments are going to struggle to deal with the fiscal burden of all this debt, which will, in a matter of a few short years, Sean, be upwards of $50 billion a year just to service our debt obligations. And just my final point on this, because I think it's important for people to understand, our debt in Canada is short-term. We've chosen over the last few years conveniently to lower our borrowing costs by borrowing over shorter durations where you don't have to pay a larger premium for the duration risk, right? So the profile of all of our government bonds is, you know, five years or less, the vast majority of them, which means they're going to roll over. And if interest rates don't come down and inflation is more sticky and we're in an era of deglobalization, then borrowing costs will be elevated for longer and will be higher for longer. Sean, I just, you worry about a doom loop, right? Like that's my concern here, a kind of doom loop that takes us back to the 90s and the painful sacrifices that weren't actually necessary. They could have been avoidable, avoided if there'd been some fiscal common sense here on the part of uh, the pre-existing governments to then and this government now. Yeah, I'd say two things in response to that, Roger. The, the first, just to pick up your point about rising debt service charges, one doesn't even have to account for some of the scenarios you paint to see that these costs are already starting to to, to grow significantly. Last last fiscal year, our debt service costs were about $21 billion. By the end of this fiscal planning period, 27, 28, they'll be $50 billion, one of the largest expenditures in the federal budget. The second thing I'll say, guys, is we've been running federal deficit since 2016, right? Um, that's something worth remembering. This will now, according to this plan, be more than a decade of, of annualized fiscal deficits. And, and even that has an asterisk because we don't know when, if ever, um, the, the Trudeau government intends to return to balance. And the risk with that, guys, is you don't know what you don't know, right? In 2019, we didn't know that we were going to be in a once in a century pandemic and we we're going to have to massively increase spending. Uh, we, we, you know, if you ask me to make a bet about whether we'll have another recession between now and say 27, 28, or now in 29, 30, I'd say probably yes. Um, and the challenge, of course, is we'll go into those economic circumstances having accumulated massive deficits in debt period leading up. And it's um, it's unexpected or unforeseen economic or pandemic or war or whatever 
uh, set of circumstances that then sets you on the type of course that you're talking about, Rudyard, which is precisely why, um, you know, Keynes, who was subsequently bastardized by, you know, pre, uh, later generations thought you should borrow in bad times and uh, save in good times. And the challenge, of course, is the Trudeau government has forgot the second part yeah. and just borrows all the time. Well, to be fair to Trudeau, it's not just this government in Canada. I think it's across the democratic West that we have dealt with sclerotic growth by ramping up on debt. It's a way to mask the, the kind of diminished, uh, rate of increase in our living standards that previous generations who are still around today remember and feel the absence of now. So to come to you, Stuart, you know, Sean brings up an important point here, the precautionary principle, like you, you just want to think that uh, things can go wrong. Um, there could be conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan. There could be a global recession. In fact, some people are saying that could happen later this year. And at the very moment that we contemplate these very real risks, massive deficits, wow, employment is extremely um, high. So there's very few people charging out to the government employment and social services benefits and tax revenues are very high because the economy is actually quite strong at this moment. We haven't had the turn down yet. So I come to you, Stuart, and I think, you know, all kinds of good reasons to subscribe to what Sean and I are saying, but the politics is different, isn't it? Like, to be honest, not just liberal voters, but voters across Canada, they're not interested in austerity. They're not even interested in fiscal probity. They love the idea of uh, free dental care. Let's throw free pharmacare in, in, their, in the next budget. Um, we're addicted to handouts, uh, you know, and... All this talk about, you know, being prudent and fiscally responsible, it's 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 a political loser. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's a political loser until all of a sudden it isn't. And it takes something like that, something big. Um, and I would also say, too, that one thing that I think I'm seeing is diminishing returns on these kind of handouts. And that's diminishing returns in the eyes of Canadians and in the eyes of the sort of political benefits to them. Um, one thing that I saw mentioned after the budget is that, you know, this could be a trap for Polyev because if he starts talking about fiscal probity, people will say, what are you going to cut? And I just couldn't agree with that more, disagree with that more, because if you watch Doug Ford come to power, you can see that Canadians are generally inclined to think that there's a lot of waste in government. And Ford basically implied that bureaucrats were burning mounds of $100 bills in the parking lot, and he would come in and make them stop doing that. And, you know, he didn't end up doing a lot of cutting, but the message resonated. He didn't get into specifics. And I think that if you listen to Stephen Harper talk uh, last week at the Canada Strong and Free Conference, he said that exact thing. Don't get caught in the trap of getting too deep into the weeds of what you would do hold the government to account. And the more things kind of feel shaky, I think Canadians, as much as the economy is still kind of roaring, I think things feel shaky. So I, I can imagine Polyev capitalizing on that in kind of a broad message way. Sean, let's end with you just on that point. You know, is this a trap for Polyev? You know, conservatives want a message around um, prudence, around planning for the unexpected, around fiscal management that acknowledges that now deficit spending indefinitely plus, you know, the loss of a quote fiscal anchor, you know, that bullet was put in that idea's head this week. Um, so, you know, we're driving down the highway, it's dark, you know, we're north of a hundred kilometers an hour and the headlights are off, right? People don't like that. I think Stuart's right. There's anxiety and uncertainty around that. But again, isn't it true that no one wants to hear about their favorite program or regional grant or subsidy going away? And, and to do any of that is just to engage in um, political suicide, massive expenditures of political capital that just hand victory to your opponent. Yeah, I, I think that's clearly the, the liberal strategy here. They've tried to jam Polyev a couple of times just in recent days about which uh, climate change subsidies would he propose to eliminate or uh, or how quickly will he take away this new dental benefit? Um, and I, so I think we're going to see a lot of that in the coming 
uh, days and weeks um, in which uh, members of the government try to effectively paint Polyev and the conservatives as um, putting at risk all of these various um, programs and benefits that the government has created. Um, and I would just say, guys, in parentheses, um, don't forget that Pierre Polyev is also um, a, a member of parliament in the Ottawa area. So um, for a lot of his bullishness on limited government and spending reductions, et cetera, he's always, in my experience, had a, a, a kind of deft touch on managing those issues because a lot of the people who manage those programs happen to live in his riding. Um, let me just put that parentheses aside. Where I do think there's an opportunity, though, guys, and maybe it comes back to our initial conversation about the, the government's focus on its short term political interests. I, I think the biggest risk of this budget may not even be the eye popping numbers that we've been talking about. It's just a sense that the government has kind of lost the plot and there's not a a kind of coherent vision for governing at this point, it's just a kind of disparate set of spending promises for which it's not clear how they connect or what the intentions are or what the overall objectives are. If I was Polyev and his team, I'd be focusing less on what I'm keeping and what I'm cut cutting and instead characterizing this budget as evidence that the government is essentially intellectually spent, um, that in the absence of a, a kind of overriding set of ideas, it's all it has left is to spend, spend, spend. And I wonder if that's not a way for him to overcome the the political risks inherent in um, presenting a, a more parsimonious view about um, about the role of government in, in Canada. Final comment is again, I just I think something happened here. I think there was a there was a genuine attempt uh, for some probity, some prudence, and then I think this China election interference story came along and really destabilized the government, destabilized the prime minister's popularity and his ratings. And it's not just Christopher Freeland. You know, let's remember who is the deputy minister of finance. It's Michael Sabia. Okay, My, Michael's a serious guy. I mean, this is somebody who ran Castepot, senior executive at Bell Canada, someone who understands business and finance and bond markets and currency. And, th and he's getting dragged into this kind of miasma of um, debt and deficit spending. I just find that shocking. I, I really do think that the heavy hand, the fingerprints of the prime minister's office are on this budget. And we have to read this as a political document, as it always is, but a political document that's trying to address a crisis in this moment, which is plunging popularity in the part of the government uh, Pierre Polyev now outpolling the prime minister on a variety of metrics. This all does not look good. Um, and it's just a shame because this is a high stakes moment. We're seeing it around the world for economies, financial institutions, inflation, uh, you know, the challenge of China, Russia. You know, this is not a moment for petty politics. This is a moment, you know, the cliche for some leadership and some sense that there are bigger things at stake here than one person's political survival. Okay, so right after the break, uh, we're going to say goodbye to Stuart Thompson. We're going to bring on Kevin Chan, a senior policy advisor at Meta, to talk about news in Canada, how the government through Bill C-18 is proposing to uh, increase funding for newsrooms around the country by effectively requiring companies like Meta, Google, and others to enter into binding arbitration with news outlets. Who knows? Maybe the hub to provide uh, compensation for the content that these news uh, companies provide, stories, commentary, analysis, and insights. Is this good for Canada? Is this good for the media? We obviously have a point of view on it, and we're going to get into that next with Kevin Chan. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. 
Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. As I mentioned before the break, uh, doing something a little bit different on the back half of the show. It's part of what we want to feature here on the Roundtable from time to time, which is conversations with policy uh, thinkers who are kind of in the middle of an interesting public policy issue. And we certainly have that on deck with you today. We're joined by Kevin Chan, the Global Policy Campaign Strategy Director at Meta. Um, he's kind of one of the key people at Meta thinking through the implications of the uh, so-called Online News Act. We know it as Bill C-18 that would uh, see not just Meta, but other big, quote, platforms like uh, Google um, entering into agreements, uh, binding arbitration with news organizations to subsidize uh the cost of news production in Canada. So Kevin, thanks so much for the opportunity to kick this around. We had a great response to your appearance on the Hub Dialogues with Sean Spear, and I think people wanted more, and particularly they wanted to have um, a kind of rich policy conversation about C-18 and its implications from Meta's perspective, and we're happy to share ours too. So maybe, uh, Kevin, if we could kick off there, what is... Meta's current stance, position, view of uh, of C eighteen, and how are you approaching um, this legislation, which looks on track to become law? Sure, you know, thank you very much, uh, Rudyard, and thank you for having me back, and and Sean as well. Um, look, I, I I think we've been clear that this bill is very challenging. Um, and in recent weeks, we've indicated, uh, I think, uh, I think very directly, but also very transparently, um, that if the bill, uh, bill C-18 passes as is, uh, we are going to end the availability of news on our Facebook and Instagram, uh, in Canada. And that is obviously something that is not something that we are doing, um, lightly. Um, it is uh, something that I think is uh, unfortunately a business decision um, that we need to take, you know, as, as you will appreciate, um, you know, senior members of the government have said this is a business decision um, that uh, companies need to take uh, with regards to Bill C-18, meaning whether you continue to stay in the news facilitation market um, or, or exit it. Um, and uh, in this case, given the challenges uh, with C-18, uh, we, we really uh, took a long, hard look at it. And I think our, our conclusion, our decision on this uh, is that we need, to, we need to end the availability of the news. We need to exit the market because um, really the, 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 the requirements under Bill C-18 as currently written are just, just unworkable. Let me bring Sean Spear, editor-at-large, into the conversation because Sean and I have been talking about this bill a lot. Um, because, Sean, in some ways, you know, the hub is an interesting story in itself. And for full disclosure, we, we've had a partnership with Meta. It's been a really uh, productive one. We were part of uh, a number of media startups that were selected to join Meta's North American kind of boot camp for uh, digital marketing. But, Sean, in some ways, it's more than that. Like, if we look at how we've now succeeded in the last year with over a million unique users on our platform discoverability, that horrible jingoistic word, nonetheless, like was one of our major challenges. And I would argue Meta was pretty important for us in terms of solving it. Yeah, that's right. Um, as a, a new independent alternative media model, we've had to think uh, creatively about how to reach new and different audiences um, and um, and raise revenue um, outside of traditional revenue generation models from the, the legacy media. And in that sense, social media platforms like Facebook have been a big part of that. A significant share of our day-to-day -day traffic comes from Meta. Um, a significant share of um, new members and subscribers comes through our efforts to bring awareness and, and familiarity with the hub 
using um, Meta's digital ad platform. So, you know, it just seems to me, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, one of the my concerns about C18 is it seems to be effectively trading off the interests of legacy media uh, and their immediate financial needs with the interests of independent alternative media organizations like The Hub that are finding new and different ways to reach their audience by leveraging um, these kind of platforms. And maybe I'll just turn that um, to, to, to you, Kevin. You talked a bit about um, the obligations um, that a company like yours would be subjected to under C18. I, I'm under no illusion that our all of our listeners know all of the intricacies of, uh, of the act. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on, on what it would mean for Meta and how you'd go about effectively abiding by the act like how would you decide which news organizations to enter into some form of agreement with and which ones not to and how would you decide the right level of financial compensation for one organization and not the other it, it just seems to me that there are some basic practicalities uh, uh, reflected in the act that would put a, a terrible onus on on um, meta and others to, uh, to to have to navigate yeah, no, I, I, I'm happy to sort of put our two cents worth here uh, into the Sean. I mean, I think just to build on what you were saying, the fact that, in fact, what you're saying is your organization, your publication uh, is sees value in free distribution on Facebook. That is exactly the value proposition that is there for all publishers. And because they do this voluntarily, no one is asking or requiring um, somebody to put something on Facebook. They do it voluntarily. They do it freely. And presumably they do it because it's a value to them. And of course, Bill C-18, the challenge with that one is that it completely inverts that understanding. It actually says, well, wait a minute. We believe that actually this platform or a platform benefits disproportionately from this relationship when in fact, Clearly, and, and I think you, the hub is 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 a is a very good example of that. You're saying, well, actually, the 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 value logic actually goes the opposite direction, and so so the bill is challenging precisely because it ignores the realities of actually how this works, how publishers get value, what is the value of a platform, and pretends it's the opposite. Um, and I would just say, you know, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, and <laughs> for me, the challenge is you can create a law, right? that says, well, the earth is flat, but that doesn't actually mean the earth is flat. And so th this is a bit of the challenge with this. And so, I mean, the, the, the second point that you point out is that it completely distorts the market um, for the news business. And so there are two, at least two challenges with this. And one is, but you, what, what, what's happening is you have these incumbent large uh, newspapers and news publishers who are going to presumably, based on analysis from the parliamentary budget officer, benefit uh, from this kind of framework. And what happens is for all the small publications um, that are finding innovative ways to leverage the internet um, to actually grow and make a business, um, they're the ones that are going to be challenged in this environment. And so I think for all of us, um, we should be very concerned about what the distortions will be um, in the marketplace. And maybe the third thing I would say, and this one is a bit outside of the debate about news publishers and platforms, but it's really this notion that in the bill, the most perhaps egregious aspect of this bill is that it basically says, look, um, links, anything that you do to facilitate access to news, which is what this bill is about, is like if you facilitate access, you have to pay. Um, we're talking basically about news links. So any links that you put onto Facebook that others put onto Facebook, right? So like we have this new report, it says like 90% of all links, news links on Facebook are put there by news publishers. Whatever you put there, Facebook needs to pay for it. And so you can see how that completely uh, eviscerates this notion of a free and open internet. The reason why the internet is awesome is because you can share links and people can find different things. That's why people voluntarily put things on Facebook. But if you say, well, actually, every time a publisher voluntarily puts a link there, Facebook has to pay, you're basically putting like a toll booth 
in front of every link that you put for a news uh, article. Um, and you can see why quickly that becomes untenable for us because we can't control who puts what on the platform. Uh, and so if we're up against, you know, a rock and a hard place, then we're going to have to get out of the, of the market. You could certainly see a new business model, which is posting a heck of a lot of links on Facebook and then sending you guys, you guys a bill every month. I, I, I think I've got a troll farm in Romania that I could spin up uh, to do that tomorrow. But Kevin, the reality here, let's talk about what this is really trying to solve. What this is really trying to solve is that legacy media's advertising model was just profoundly disrupted by the arrival of uh, the platforms. And uh, in the absence of that model to generate revenues, government has stepped in with um, payroll subsidies and other programs to, to begin to directly subsidize uh, news production. Isn't this just the, the natural extension of where government goes next, right? Which is it looks for big corporate incumbents and then it says, okay, you guys are going to start to pay. I mean, we just saw this in the most recent federal budget. The government is now levying multi-billion dollar taxes on the Canadian banks because they're too profitable. Well, maybe that's also because they're a duopoly, an oligopoly, uh, which the government's decided that they should exist in that framework. But that's another debate for another day. I'm just wondering what you think about, in a sense, being forced into a solution for a real problem. I think you'd acknowledge it's a real problem, the underfunding of news in Canada. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how the platforms, in fact, have been not unimportant to the profitability and the business model and the revenue generation of these leg legacy media themselves. Yeah, I think this is challenging. I think we all care about uh, news and we all care about the future of journalism. Um, and we've all tried, I think, to work to find different ways of helping. But I think the, 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 the honest truth is, and Roger, you're touching a bit on it, is that there is no, there is no silver bullet. Um, and I would say, and if you look at some of the research, so again, in this Nero report that came out earlier this week, but if you look at lots of other academic studies, um, the, the reality is the newspaper industry, and from an advertising subscriber point of view, has been declining. Since the 19, I think the peak was in the 1980s. Uh, this predates actually the modern internet. It actually predates these platforms. Um, and so while any given platform and its presence in the advertising industry um, might have accelerated the process, if you look at the data set going back to the 1980s, you can see this slow secular decline uh, in the market. Um, and so I think it's important to acknowledge that, that there is a kind of um, that there's kind of a trend line that predates, um, you know, recent, recent developments and the recent rise of these platforms. But I think over and above that, I mean, if, if you're looking for solutions, um, it is a very odd one to make some claim that there is a special relationship between publishers and platforms. Um, from our point of view, I can just share, you know, a news publication, can have a presence on Facebook, but so can a small business, so can a university, um, so can an activist, so can a politician. And what's common about, and they all use the same Facebook product, if you will, it's a Facebook page that they have. And they on the page, you can post, you can run ads, you can do a whole bunch of different things to reach an audience on Facebook. But what they all have in common is that they're there voluntarily. We don't pay them to be there. They have a presence on Facebook, presumably because they see value in it. Um, and so, in fact, what we what we understand to be the value proposition for all of these different types of institutions and people is that they can reach 24 million Canadians every month being on this platform. And that's why they do it. Um, and, and so, again, any kind of policy solution that kind of ignores that and just says, well, there must be something going on. You must secretly really want certain types of content or certain types of links. Um, and that's why we have to make you pay. Uh, just doesn't bear, uh, you know, it doesn't bear out when you scrutinize uh, the facts. And it really is a misreading and misunderstanding of actually where the value is flowing, right? The value is flowing from platforms to these organizations, not the other way around. And so, Kevin, um, Rudyard said early on um, that 
this legislation seems poised to to pass and and if it mm. does ultimately take effect and as you say establish something of a framework in the marketplace can you just give listeners a sense of where things stand and um and what the next steps are as as parliament considers passage of bill c18 Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's we're down to the last strokes, although you know, others are probably better placed to to say, you know, what what's going to happen next. But from a from a technical standpoint, where what, from what we can see from the outside, I think we're on the cusp of going to a Senate committee study. Um, the senators have been very thoughtful uh, throughout this process uh, in terms of their public commentary and also on other bills that relate to the Internet, like C-11, which I know you have spoken about previously. Um, and so the Senate committee is going to weigh in on it. They're going to study it. They're going to call witnesses. I hope that they will call us um, because, as you may recall, the House of Commons committee um, nearly uh, passed the bill without even asking us to appear, um, <laughs> which was which was challenging because we were obviously being invoked at every turn rhetorically as being the reason why they want to pass this bill. But but finally, we were able to to get before the, the House. Um, we, we hope to be before the Senate. Um, and then the Senate will hear from us, but they'll hear from many other people both for and against the bill. Um, and then after that, um, they will vote on it. Um, and um, they may make amendments. We, we certainly hope they will. Um, but obviously, it's possible uh, in their wisdom that the bill is passed as is, as it was in the House. Uh, and if that happens, then I think we're kind of done. Um, and then it'll be the law of the land. Um, and then as we've indicated, uh, we will we will need to regrettably exit the market. And I say this, I just want to be clear, you know, I've heard some rhetoric about how we're, this is kind of a, a bluff or, 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 or something else uh, that we're playing some kind of game here. I, I actually think given the, 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 the impossibility of the legislation, um, we had to be as transparent and clear uh, with Canadians as early as possible. So I don't think it would have been better. It would have been far worse if we had just sort of made a, a hush, a, a, sorry, a, a rushed decision at the very end after the Senate passes the bill. That would have been the most irresponsible uh, and sort of opaque way of doing this. I think it's better, and I hope that when cooler heads prevail, most people would agree it's better to be clear months in advance uh, about what the downstream implications will be from our business decision um, than it is to wait till the end. And, and I bring it back to, again, the, the very, I think, rational point that the Minister of Canadian Heritage has said, which is that this, you know, companies need to make business decisions um, based on what the regulatory requirements are in each country. Um, and we are making what we believe to be a very uh, rational uh, business decision. Uh, based on, again, the impossibility of what Bill C-18 will require us to do. Final question, Kevin. You know, for those of us that have known you for a while in your different incantations, including as a senior bureaucrat in the Privy Council office, I mean, this is very familiar to you, this environment that you're operating in. And I know that you're somebody who really does care about the country and it and the public interest. What What's your sense of what happens after you know the bill is passed and news is turned off on facebook i mean the statistics show a lot of canadians do come to your platform to look for news and information about um, their local community about national affairs kevin i just just a feeling here of like a big public policy failure that we're going to end up with just a series of like bad outcomes and I wonder, just in the context of your public policy career, having gone through, you know, working inside government, outside government, what does this make you think about the whole system and the kind of state of the public policy conversation in Canada today? Sure. Well, look, I mean, I'll definitely answer that because I and I'm very glad you asked it because I think this is something that I think we all care about our country. Um, and so we should definitely um, we should definitely talk about it. I would just say, though, I would point out that the, 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 the empirical stats seem to suggest, so Roger, I will just push a little bit on this, is that people get news on Facebook, um, but it turns out that the majority of people actually get their news from other sources. So they go to like TV um, or they actually go directly to the websites. So I, I gather whether they, they type in the, the URL on their browser or they have a, an, app, an app already downloaded. So I think, you know, I think, think the stats that we have from the NIR report say, you know, 33% of people get their news, uh, prefer their news from TV. 
then it's 23% from direct websites, and then like 13% from, uh, 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 from, from Facebook. So not denying that people find news on Facebook for sure, but again, from our point of view, it's about 3% of all content that people get uh, in their personalized uh, feeds. Having said that, yeah, I, I, I think this is going to be, uh, this whole enterprise, I think, has been uh, somewhat um, uh, surprising um, because it's so far afield from the deliberative and thoughtful public policy that I've known uh, Canada to be capable of, and quite frankly, what the public service is capable of. And I just remember, and we you know, Roger, you and I, we've known each other for a while. And I think you're right to sort of ask this question about like, what's happening internally. And I used to remember a time, and Sean, you might know this as well, right? But there used to be a time when like, and politicians don't always like this, but you know, the public service would, you know, were very thoughtful, very, very strategic, very long-term thinkers would sort of exercise what they call the challenge function. And they say, look, you know, minister or prime minister, you want to do X or Y. We understand, but um, we just wanted to share with you some of the um, you know, potential challenges with, with this idea. And we want to you know, maybe outline some of the downstream implications of what could happen. And of course, this is a democracy. And so, you know, elected officials decide but we just want to be sure um, that you, you, you hear from us um, that these could be some of this very serious implications of potentially of, of, what we, of, what, of what we might have to contend with if we proceed. And I think my biggest disappointment is that I have not seen any evidence of that. Um, even when you talk to somebody in the system, um, you know, uh, in a closed door conversation where we could be honest, and I think, in lots of closed door conversations, lots of people say, we know this doesn't make sense. Um, but, but, but I just don't get the impression that within the governmental system, um, there is that ability now um, to, to exercise that kind of policy muscle to say, well, wait a minute, the, the world doesn't work this way. The internet doesn't work this way. And therefore, there may be better options, better solutions and um, and we are going to exercise that challenge function and speak truth to power on it. I I do worry, not just on this front. I think we've seen it from other commentators on a series of fronts, uh, on different files, on different issues. That that kind of ability, that kind of muscle, um, to 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 cart to create thoughtful policy that achieves the same objectives, but does it in a way that is based on facts and based on evidence. Um, that is world class. I think that is that is uh, diminishing, and um, and it's really it's really unfortunate and disappointing to see. Kevin, I just you've been very generous with your time. I just want to squeeze in one final question, which is, what do you think this does to Canada's international reputation when it comes to the innovation economy that we're supposedly trying to build, the capital that we're trying to attract around the world? In terms of tech, AI is a big place, obviously, where we're trying to play in. What message does this send when companies like Facebook effectively say, okay, we're exiting, not exiting Canada, obviously, but we're exiting this particular kind of function of our platform in your jurisdiction only? Uh, I guess Australia, there was an agreement reached, but it, does this single out Canada and what do you think the potential negative consequences of that are? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think it's very regrettable. Um, you know, Canada, as I've noted er, er, before with Sean, I mean, Canada is a middle power. We are a trade-dependent country. And I think that, uh, generally speaking, uh, what's good for the digital economy and what's good for the country is to be open to, uh, to, to global forces, to be part, to be integrated into the global digital economy. And... While we are very focused with CAT on talking about the relationship between publishers and, and platforms, really what we're talking about is to what degree do you want to create um, sort of erect walls that kind of carve out certain parts of the digital economy in Canada from the rest of the global economy. And so, I, I mean, I just think at, at, a, at a much higher macro level, um, this is presumably inconsistent with what 
uh, our country needs to be doing um, in order to fully benefit um, from the terms of trade that we have with the rest of the, the world. Um, and so anytime you create cr friction in, 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 in the internet where you say, well, certain things are available in Canada, uh, certain things are not available in Canada, but available everywhere else in the world on the internet, um, that is obviously problematic. It's problematic from a business and, and, and digital economy point of view. But I think more fundamentally, when we're talking about the internet, we're really talking about information flowing around the world. And so we should, as I think, as people who believe in freedom, as people who believe in a free and open internet, where freedom of expression should reign, I, I think we should all be troubled by that from a principled point of view. Uh, and that's obviously very challenging. And I hope, I hope Canadians think about that. Well, thank you, Kevin, for giving us a lot to think about today. Uh, let's try to stay in touch on this. It'd be fascinating to continue to have this conversation with you. Because again, it, for the hub, this is... Uh, you know, our, our meat and potatoes, we just love this kind of confluence of technology, pol policy, and a little bit of politics, no doubt, uh, thrown in too. So thank you so much for coming on the roundtable today. And just a reminder to our listeners that Kevin Chan is the uh, Global Policy Campaign Strategy Director at Meta. And uh, full declaration, you know, the hub has been a beneficiary of a, a partnership with Meta um, around uh, our own startup as a digital media platform. And uh, hey, we're, we're big, big, big fans, as you can tell. So uh, I just want to be clear on that front that we are not um, uh, entirely neutral and impartial when it comes to this uh, debate, because in no small part, our future may well depend on how it is ultimately resolved. So we're going to wrap up the roundtable today with these remarks, and we'll see you all again next Friday. Thank you guys so much and gals for listening to the program and uh, tuning into The Hub. Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, and hey, check out our Facebook page. Lots of great content there, too. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.